Hey y'all, welcome to the Marty Smith America podcast. This is volume 41 and it's one of my favorite conversations ever. I feel like that's a broken record. I feel like I say it every week, but uh, man, they're getting good. Uh, from having Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, a couple weeks ago to Heinz Ward last week. And this week we have Brant Snedeker, the PGA golfer who's had an amazing career uh, and still so much yet to accomplish in his own mind. You'll hear him discuss that. You'll also hear him give what might be Travis the most ringing endorsement in the history of the ESPN <laughs> app. We need to put him on payroll. It'll crack you guys up. This guy is so infatuated with Vanderbilt Athletics, that being his alma mater. Uh, he's very funny. He's very funny in discussing how much he loves his school and the lengths to which he will go on the links to make sure sometimes that he is aware of what's going on with the Commodores. But before we get to my wide-ranging conversation with Brant, from which I learned so much, fascinating dude, I want to chat with you guys a moment about 1-800-Flowers. I got some relationship tips for you guys, and relationship tip number one, it's not going to really feel like Valentine's unless there's a surprise bouquet of roses involved. And this season, the biggest and brightest roses are found at 1-800-Flowers.com. Right now, when you order early, 1-800-Flowers has amazing deals on vibrant and romantic Valentine's rose bouquets, arrangements, and more, starting at just $29.99. There are so many unbelievable deals from 1-800-Flowers, but you have to hurry. Roses from 1-800-Flowers are picked at their peak and shipped overnight to ensure freshness and her amazement. Gorgeous Valentine's bouquets and arrangements starting at $29.99. That's an amazing deal, but it will not last long. Bouquet prices will be going up very soon as Valentine's approaches, so make sure to take advantage today. Pick your delivery date. Let 1-800-Flowers handle the rest. When it comes to Valentine's, I don't settle for anything less than my Rose Authority, 1-800-Flowers.com. To order Valentine's bouquets, arrangements, and more starting at $29.99, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, and enter the code MARTY. Order today and save at 1-800-Flowers.com, code MARTY. Now it's time for my conversation with PGA Tour star Brant Snedeker. Buckle up. It's a good one. All right, here's where we're going to start, Brant. First, uh, I want to thank you for moving the podcast taping time because y'all need to understand Brant is a father too. Y'all know I'm a father and Mia, my middle one had a play and that is very important. And so my man Brant understands fatherhood. So he moved the time. Thank you, sir. That's how you get off on the right foot. Yeah, no problem. As being a dad who misses all kinds of stuff, I I realize it's important to make those when you can. So Easy to do. Happy you were able to make it. I'm sure she did awesome. She did, man. It's fun to watch. It's just inspiring to me to see our little people that we made, you know, be on a stage yeah. like that and be so confident. It fills up my tank, man. But yeah, it's awesome, um, especially when their dad's there. Little girls and dads, something special, man. It is. It's impossible to describe. I've tried to articulate it, and I just don't know how yet because the feeling that 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 love is inside of me is just beyond description. Maybe someday I'll be able to put it into words. I don't know. You're pretty good with um, them. I think, I think you'll be able to figure it out. <laughs> well, thank you, brother. I say, like, let's let's start 
in Nashville. You're a lifelong Nashville guy, born and raised, never left. I got to know, like when you're coming up, you just turned 38, right? Happy birthday. Uh, thank you very much. I did. So when you're like at the grocery store when you're a little boy, did you ever run into Waylon Jennings or anything? You know, no, but I mean, I've gotten to know quite a few of the country guys here in town just because of uh, most of them are golf junkies. Most of them are killing time during the day when they're traveling or when they're in a city doing a spot, so they all end up playing some golf. So I've got to know quite a few of the guys that way. But, yeah, you'll run into guys around town. That's what makes Nashville so great. I remember growing up in town and seeing Garth Brooks running around town all the time and Alan Jackson and all these great country stars are growing up here in Nashville and just normal Joes, just going to, you know, going to the mall, shopping, going to dinner at certain restaurants, whatever it may be, and everybody kind of leaving them alone and letting them do their thing. Nobody really coming up and bothering them too much and, I think it's part of the reason why there's so many of these guys that still live in Nashville because they love they love the vibe here, they love the people, um, and, and they love living in, in, in Nashville, which has grown immensely since I was here as a kid. It used to be kind of a little farm town. Now it's turned into this kind of new hip city. So it's, it's been fun to watch it transform. That's exactly where I was going. Um, it's my favorite town in the country. I live in Charlotte. I love Charlotte. It's a great place to be and to raise my family. I moved here right out of college because I was chasing race cars at the time. I knew I wanted to be in NASCAR racing, and that's why I moved here. But And we've stayed here. But, man, I have been – I have a lot of buddies in country music too, and they keep telling me, you got to come to Nashville. That town is an awesome town. Too. I consider it Charlotte with art. I think it's so inspiring to be there because of the artistic boom that it's experiencing. How have you seen it grow during your lifetime? I mean, it's unbelievable. When I grew up, pretty much everything outside of downtown was touristy with a few country bars. Wasn't really well kept at, the, at that time and wasn't exactly the safest place in the world um, when I was a young kid, seven, eight years, nine years old. Now, and, and where the town has grown, used to be all farmland. Used to be literally, you know, horse farms or cattle farms or whatever it may be. And now to see the city expand the way it does, the way it has, the way the city government was smart forward thinking to kind of invest a lot of money in downtown to really clean it up um it really embrace the tourism aspect of it embrace um you know the business side of, of, of all the different companies that come to town whether it be hca that the healthcare companies or uh, the music industry and really embracing those things um you know technology has been a huge proponent of this and now with this artistic side that's come up in the last five eight years it's been really unbelievable to see it kind of change and take on this new you feel like you're part of a metropolitan area. There's all these little different sects downtown now. We can go and have a great time, experience everything. And, and, and I tell people all the time, don't come to Nashville for, for just country music. Come come to Nashville for a great food scene, for a great music scene, no matter what kind of music you want to listen to, a great art scene, and for the people. And the people will make it so special. It's such a welcoming place. P- people kind of go out of their way to make sure you have a great time and really want to embrace anybody from out of town to come here and experience it. I'm a, I'm a lifelong country music fanatic, and, and anybody that knows anything about me knows that some of my greatest heroes are Waylon, Willie, and Cash, and Chris. And I've always been captivated with that outlaw scene, and it's funny, man, back to daughters, uh, daddies and daughters, when in week three of the college football season, I had LSU-Auburn in Auburn. And that was when Hurricane Florence was coming through Charlotte. Right, yep. And so... Laney and I, I took my whole family with me to Auburn, and after the game, we just drove. Okay, so you have a daughter. Does your daughter have an American Girl doll? Of course. Okay, all of them do, right? So both of mine have them. And my Mia, the girl that I went to see, my my daughter that that did the play today, 
she has an American Girl doll that is a country singer. Tenny Grant is her doll. So she is nine and infatuated with Nashville. So we just drove up from Auburn to Nashville since there was a hurricane in Charlotte. And we took our daughters to the Ryman. We took them to the Bluebird. And, dude, to see, like, my passion through their eyes was a fascinating experience. It was awesome. That town just rocks. I could go on and on. I know it's awesome. I mean, I've gotten, you know, the good fortune to have all these great musicians come through town. Have the good fortune of taking my daughter to do some really cool things, um, and my little man uh, to do it with me, and it's been fun. And, you know, last night we went to a annual basketball game, um, had an early game, so that they're in school and got to take them down there. We actually beat Arizona State and to, to do stuff like that to be able to take them to those little events and see them kind of share a passion that you have with them and see them experience it and have fun. And just more than anything, they're, they're just enjoying spending time with you. Um, and having fun with you. And it's so cool to have those moments like that. And, uh, you know, Ryman is a, is a, is a, is a must do when you come to town, the Bluebird Cafe. I, I lived there for about three years, about literally 500 yards away where I'd walk the Bluebird probably once a month and just check it out. Um, it's really, really cool to be able to do that here in town and just, um, experience what, what, what all Nashville has to offer. So which country singer that you've played golf with is the best? You know, back in the day, Vince Gill was really good. He's, he's gotten a little older now, but he, he could really hit it. He's, you know, he would always give me a hard time because he'd always say, what are you letting, why are you letting some fat guitar player out drive it? Because he could really smoke it, uh, back in the day. And, uh, you know, Jake Owens a really good player. Um, Charles Kelly grew up in Augusta, Georgia, um, from Lane Bellum. Can really, really play pretty good. So there's quite a few guys right now that, that are going. Clay Walker's a golf junkie. Um, I see him playing all the time. So, uh, and Eric Church is kind of new to it. You know, it's funny when I hear you on your podcast and talk to you right now, you sound eerily similar to Eric Church. I'm sure you've heard that before. I don't know if you sing like him, but you talk, I mean, eerily similar. I do not sing like him. Uh, but yes, I've heard that many times and that includes my own children. So Eric's a buddy <laughs> of mine. And so they hear about him all the time. And yeah. Uh, I have heard that before. Damn, I wish I sang like him, Brant. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'd be doing this podcast right now. Somebody might be interviewing me instead. But um, so I read where your grandmother introduced you to the game. What was it like? I mean, did, was did you play with her? What was what was that like? What was no, that introduction? So my, my, my both my grandparents are from small town millionaire nowhere, Missouri, a place called West Plains, Missouri, and she was the manager of the country club there. Um, I guess you'd call it country club. It was, it was the only golf course really in town. And so we would go up in the summertime and spend a couple of weeks with her. My, my grandparents were divorced. Um, my grandfather, we spent a week with him. Um, he lived a double-wide trailer out in the boonies, and we had the best time. It was awesome. And my grandmother uh, would take us to the club, and she just let us go play golf all day um, while she was working. And so uh, that's how we got introduced to the game. I was six years old. I think my brother was nine or ten years old at the time. And that was the first time we really played. My dad was a baseball player growing up. Started picking up golf when he got later in life, but didn't really, at that time, was playing maybe once a week with, with some buddies on the weekend. Um, and so that was kind of our introduction. She got our first set of golf clubs. And from there, it just kind of, we kind of ran with it as boys. Uh, my brother was a you know, obviously, being the younger brother, I kind of did whatever he did. And he got into golf a little bit. I got even more so into golf and just loved it. And that's how I started playing. And then my dad um, kind of took it and ran with it. It was an excuse to get him out and play some golf on the weekends, I think. And so it's something we did as a family. We, we, we had a bunch of great matches with me and my brother playing my dad and vice versa. And, um, it, it was a lot of fun. You know, a lot of, a lot of great quality time spent on the golf course. 
When did you know you were better than the other guys? You know, my, my mom still has this thing I did in kindergarten that when you fill out what you want to do for your life. So this is right after I got in this golf club, and I filled out this whole thing about being on a PGA Tour, playing golf for a living. And uh, that's all I've ever wanted to do. I never had any other passion to, to do anything else. I was always – my parents always kind of drove, drove it into me that you need to have a backup plan because it probably isn't going to happen. Don't mean to burst your bubble, but, you know, not very many guys that make it. And I never really kind of registered with me. I always thought I was going to do it. and um, I just never had – I guess I had the right mentality for it. Uh, my brother's really, really talented. He played at Ole Miss, was an All-American, a really good player. But we're polar opposite um, – mentality on the golf course he had a terrible temper um really talented but just could never um kind of let bad shots go get on the next shot and kind of figure it out i never really had an issue with that i was always kind of glasses half full everything's going to work out it's going to be fine kind of guy and uh this was really lucky i guess i, I always had a bunch of good stuff happen to me on the golf course and i really had any horrible breaks where i lost tournaments i should have won or anything like that just kind of kept building confidence and um always just kind of thought it was going to work out and luckily it did because I don't know what I would be doing for a living if it didn't. <laughs> what was that moment like then if it was such a childhood aspiration and dream when you earned your card? Yeah, the, the coolest thing I got to do, um, I won the U.S. Publings uh, tournament when I was 22 years old and got to play in the, in the Masters as an amateur. And that was the first moment where I was really like, and I was a good college player, first team American, all that kind of stuff, and knew I was going to have a chance. But to go play in the Masters as an amateur, such a cool experience. You know, it's, it's something to stay in the crow's nest over the clubhouse. I had never been to a professional event before I played in the Masters, never gone to a PGA Tour event. I had never played with a PGA Tour player, so I had no idea what I was getting into. And I remember walking out the first morning, and uh, they opened the first gates at 8 o'clock in the morning for the first patrons to walk on property. And I got called about 7.30 in the morning that I had parked my car, got driven down from, from Nashville, and I parked my car in the, in a bad spot, patron crosswalk. They were going to tow it if I didn't move it. So, of course, I'm freaking out, you know, thinking they're going to kick me out of this place. I haven't been here for a night. And uh, go move the car. It's weird feeling being there on property when there's no, no, there's no patrons. It was, it was kind of an eerie ghost town feeling. And I remember going upstairs and taking a shower and walking back downstairs around 8.15, and seeing, you know, 30,000 people on the golf course and walked down. I took the wrong turn and went to the champion's locker room and seeing Jack Nicholas, you know, DJ Singh and all, Phil, you know, all these guys in this locker room. I about threw up. I ran back upstairs. I mean, I don't know if I can go play today. I don't know if I can go put a tee in the ground. This is just overwhelming, you know, being a, you know, a kid from Nashville trying to come down here, never seen a professional event, never met a professional player really. And, uh, I remember if I can handle this stuff, if I can go out there and play with these guys and somewhat keep it together, um, I can do this. Because I was just totally ill-prepared. I mean, never had any idea what I was doing. And I made the cut on the number, played four rounds. I didn't play grand weekend, but I did it. And so uh, when that happened, I was like, okay, I, I-, I can handle this kind of stuff. So this is about as much as I'll ever be in my career. I, I think I can figure it out. That kind of leads me to the next question. And if this is redundant, just say so. But no. in my estimation – I feel like golf pressure is different than the pressure of other sports because other sports, athletes are somewhat removed from the fans. Golf, you guys are right in it, man. I mean, if you shank a tee off, you're going to laser somebody's teeth out, right? You guys live on an island. When do you become comfortable with that island? You know, it's funny. It takes time, and it's the hardest thing to do in sports is to kind of block the noise out, right, to realize that, um, you know, fans right now, 
in my career when I see them, it's just like a wall of people. I never really make eye contact. I try to, like when I'm walking between holes, to be you know smile, make sure I'm polite and be nice. But you don't really see faces. You just kind of see blurs of, of colors, to be, to be honest with you, when you're in the moment. Um, but it's the, the, the thing that people don't realize about golf is every other sport, for the most part, is a reaction sport um, in that the action's constant. You don't have time to think. You're just reacting. Um, to what's going on. And golf is completely the opposite. You have, you know, of, of the five hours that we're on golf course, you're really only hitting, you know, eight minutes worth of golf shots or six minutes worth of golf shots. So you have a ton of time for your mind to create all these hurdles that you have to come o- overcome. And so that's probably the hardest thing about being, or dealing with pressure is not the actual 30 seconds when you hit the shot. It's the three minutes up to that 30 seconds, how you handle it, how you get your mind in the right space, uh, and of how you kind of get yourself into the right frame of mind, and the and the the, the auxiliary stuff, the the outside stuff, becoming not, not that big of a deal. Like I, you know, you don't worry. As for a general rule, most golfers love being individuals because it falls on us. At the end of the day, if we fail, it's all our fault. Like you can't blame your caddy, can't blame your coach. At the end of the day, it's on you. You, know, you got to find a way to get it done or don't get it done. And I think most golfers love that. And I think that's why it's really really tough when you play. See guys play team golf, Ryder Cup golf, or Presidents Cup golf. Because it's so different, you know, because you, you're relying on 11 other guys. You feel almost doubly intense pressure because you're, you don't want to let your teammates down. And we don't deal with that on a regular basis. That's probably one of the things that it's probably tough when I watch a team sport is to, to kind of get is seeing how much, you know, how tough that would be, how much more pressure it would be on those guys because they've got 11 other guys that are dependent on them, how much that would will them and push them to kind of get over, over whatever hump they're trying to get over. How many guys use sports psychologists? I think everybody's probably used one, one at one point or another in their career. I, I think I've been through three or four. Um, you know, try to help you get in the right frame of mind. Um, I, I haven't used one for about probably ten years now. Um, you know, I think every every guy wants wants an answer to a question that most sports psychologists cannot answer. You know, when I feel terrible. When everything's going sideways and I'm on the 18th hole and I've got, you know, a billion, you know, 25 million people watching me at home on TV and I got, you know, 30,000 people out here watching me at this shot and I feel like I'm, I don't know where it's going to go. What do I do? How do I get it in a fairway? And, you know, they have their, fear, uh, they have their, you know, their kind of checklist you go through. At the end of the day, you've got to find out because everybody's different. You've got to find out how you can do it yourself. you got to find out, okay, this is what my tendencies are. This is how I, you know, I've tried this before. It didn't. It's a trial and error period. Of like, this is how I handle the pressure. This is how I get through it. How I can hit a shot that I know I have somewhat confidence I can pull off, and believe in yourself enough to say, you know what, I'm going to find a way to get it done. I mean, that's the one thing I love. I've, I've taken away from getting to know Tiger Woods a little bit was knowing that as bad as I feel over a golf shot, no matter how nervous I get, I know Tiger Woods feels the exact same way. I mean, there's a reason why he's probably a thousand over par on this first hole in his golf career because he's always so nervous he's about to throw up on the first hole every time he tees it up. And so if Tiger Woods is nervous over the shot, then I should take comfort in that fact, knowing that he feels the exact same way I do. We're on the level playing field. Now how do I handle it? Um, he's obviously the best ever at handling it. I've got to find my way of handling it. You know? So that's probably been the biggest help for me in the last 10 years of my career. So that's something he readily admits? That Tiger oh, says yeah. that he's that nervous on the first tee. First tee, oh yeah, every time, yeah, he is no. He's like, if you're not nervous, and I completely agree. With him, if you're not nervous, then what are you doing? 
That means you don't care about the outcome of this event. That means you're not invested in the process. That means you're not invested in anything to put into this. Because when you go play an event and you're teed off, you're writing a score down at the end of that round, and that's going to reflect a thousand percent on you. If you do the work, if you do all the stuff you're supposed to do to be successful, um, and there's no hiding from that number. You know, I mean, I've shot 85 on tour, and I've shot 59 on tour. So I've seen all both, you know, both streams uh, of that. So. And there's nowhere to hide. And then if that ball goes in the ground, your score is going to be there for everybody to see. And so uh, you better be nervous. And you better care about it. Otherwise, I don't think you'd be very good at it. We'll get to that 59 in a minute, man. I mean, what the hell? Especially when you bogey the first hole. Anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. What, what's it been like for you guys, Tigers peers, to watch him have this resurgence? What was it like to watch him win again? You ever seen anything like that before? Not really, no. You know, it's been so cool because he has kind of opened up out here in the last six, seven years since his injury um, and really got to know a lot of guys on a more personal level than he really ever has. And knowing Tiger from, you know, 06, 07, 08, 09, when he was dominating everything and everybody by a ton, to see him struggle in 13, 14, 15, to see him come back, um, it's been so cool. I mean, such such a unbelievable story I, I played with him at tampa this year in the last two rounds we had a chance to win early on in the year and uh, uh we were in the second to last group on sunday and i was playing terrible and i found myself openly rooting for tiger woods to win a golf tournament um you know we're trying to will every putt for him to go in and i said if you'd asked me this six years ago i said there's no way in hell i would have ever rooted for tiger woods like i'm rooting for him right now and that's just because of this great redemption story should i mean you know, it was so bad a couple of years ago. You know, I remember watching him chip at Phoenix, and I was like, I just don't think anybody can come back from that. You know, and, and knowing, knowing, knowing what I know now, you know, that he was in that much pain, he couldn't chip. He couldn't bend over enough to chip, to chip a ball normally. And that's why he had those chip dips for a year. Um, now it all makes sense. But back then, I didn't know. You know, nobody knew what was going on. And so we all just wanted him to get better, to see this kind of stuff we saw this year. I mean, see, to see the scene at Eastlake, on Sunday, unreal. I don't care who you are. I mean, I made my kids watch it. Uh, I wasn't there. I just missed out. So I was sat there on Sunday afternoon. I was like, guys, you got to watch this. You, you need to see. This is the most important sports figure of, of my lifetime. Um, he's the reason why we live in this house. He's the reason why I, I'm able to play for the money I'm able to play for and play the live the life that we do. So we need to sit here and watch history being made. This guy's coming back from something nobody's ever really ever had to deal with. And it's such a cool moment. And uh, yeah, he's just become. A friend to a bunch of guys on tour, and he's been a mentor to a bunch of guys. It's just cool to see him back having fun again, you know, and, and see him sharing that with his kids, which I think any father out there will tell you, um, as you know, it's really cool when your kids can see you be successful in your career and kind of share that with you a little bit. It, it, it's a really special moment. I think it's part of the reason why it's driving him so hard right now. I think so, too. I had the great blessing, and it, it's a blessing, to sit with him for quite some time before the Masters last year and get into all that and and everything that he managed and him telling me there were days when he just couldn't even get out of bed and when he did get out of bed and he put his feet on the floor he'd just fall on the floor and he couldn't get up and he couldn't even lay in the floor and play legos with his kids they'd want him to come out in the backyard and play and he couldn't even lay in the yard to watch them kick a soccer ball around because his pain was so dramatic he just had no choice he just couldn't and the way that that stripped him emotionally and, and and whatnot was was so dramatic that this 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 reemergence and this resurgence is 
all well and good. He's enjoying playing golf again and certain at this point winning again. But above all, he's happy he can walk down the street with his kids. Mm-hmm. And I was so fascinated by seeing his vulnerability in saying these things. And it, I, I felt a very odd, maybe misguided connection to him there. It was very cool to see. No, I don't think it's misguided at all. I think it's the one thing I've gotten to, to realize. I think every, everybody that's gotten to know him over the last six years is just kind of seen this, this almost different person than he was maybe 15 years ago. You know, 15 years ago, it was all about winning, 1,000% winning. That's all he cared about. He was fine to play with. He was actually super nice to play with. But he was never going to go out of his way to try to help you. He was never going to go out of his way to, to spend time with you. And it's been totally different now. Uh, I think being um, out of golf for a couple of years, um, I remember when I, I made the Ryder Cup team in 16, he was the assistant captain. It literally got to the point where my wife was like, you can answer that phone as long as it's not Tiger. Because it's Tiger going to be on the phone for an hour and a half. And that's how, invest, that's how much he missed it. That's how much he was talking to guys about what we were going to do on the Ryder Cup team, how we were going to be successful, how we were going to win. Here's how he did stuff. And all these things, that he showed him how much he still cared about the game of golf, how much he loved it. And so that's why I think everybody on tour was so excited to see him win again. We realized how much he loved it, how much he missed it, and how hard he worked to get back to where he was. And it's very rare you see that pay off the second time. It's so hard to come back. Because once you lose confidence, that's a tricky thing in golf. I mean, you see guys get the yips all the time. You see it. And, and, and really sports where you have a lot of time to think about it. You see field goal kickers did a lot in field goal and, and football. Just tough when you have time to think about stuff all the time. You have all these thoughts going through your head, and, and uh, you start getting those negative thoughts in there, man. It's, just, it, it's almost like a, a dark, deep, dark hole you go down you can never get out of. Speaking of rough moments, I know 2014 was a real tough year for you. What did you learn about yourself that year? You know how much I love what I do. You know, if you don't love what you do and you and, and you struggle like that, um, it's always tough. You know, you, you deal with injuries. I've dealt with injuries, dealt with all kinds of things, and that's tough here. You know, it's not not up to my standard, and and not up to what I I try to be. And so, it's always tough when you have those, especially when you had a bunch of great years in a row. Um, it's tough to kind of swallow a pill and say, "Man, I'm not playing as good as I was." And I got to figure out why. I got, I got nobody to blame but myself. I got to go look in the mirror and figure it out. Really redouble my efforts. You know, because I thought I was working hard enough, but I guess I wasn't. So we got to go work harder, you know, figure it out. Um, and, you know, you, you need to have a great support system. You know, you need to have – I'm lucky to have a great wife and two great kids who don't care if I win or lose. They want their dad home. They want to play with their dad. And you've got to have that great balance. I tell people this all the time. I, I won one time before I had kids. I've won eight times since. And in the same amount of time, my kids are all seven years old. So I was on tour for about six years before I had kids, and my oldest kid now is seven years old. Um, so there's a reason why I believe that. It's because I have balance in my life for the first time. I don't live and die by every shot. I don't let a bad tournament linger and cost me a good tournament the next week. Um, I'm able to kind of move on and um, not overwork myself. I used to, when I was younger in my career, I would, I would work so hard that I would practice myself into bad habits. You know, just literally be on the range all day practicing on something to the point where I would overdo it to the extreme. And so kids have given me that release to be like, you know, I need to get time away. I need to go make sure I get my work done and be, be aggressive and do everything I have to do on the golf course. And But then my kids get out of school at 4 o'clock. I'm home, spending time with them, having fun with them, being a dad. It looks like a lot of you guys are buddies out there to me, you know, just from afar and, and the outside mm-hmm. looking in. I saw this uh, – I had the great opportunity to interview Tony Finau last year as well before – you know, he kind of became Tony Finau and blew his ankle mm-hmm. up and then had that great Masters and all those things. Yeah. And 
So I saw a, a photo that he posted of you and, and he and all these other guys. I, I think Kutcher was in there, some other guys. It looked like that Ellen shot from the Emmys a few years ago. <laughs> uh, what's it? What's the challenge of building relationships when these are the same people you're fighting for food every day? Yeah, it's tough. You know, you, you got to have that balance, right? You got to have that balance of saying, "Hey, these, we're a traveling circus, right? Every week we're in a new city. We typically stay in the same hotels. We, we travel the same. You know, either hop on some, you know, share, share a plane ride with somebody, or or see them in the airport, or, or go to dinner with them, whatever it may be, or play practice with them. So, so you always have your buddies that you play that you go along with. And for the most part, the tour is really we're really lucky. We've got a ton of great guys on tour right now. We've, we've got a bunch of great young kids that are playing great, that are fun to be around. Bunch of great old guys are still hanging in there, they're playing great golf. So it's a fun time to be traveling, and being on tour because we have so many fun guys to be around. But come Thursday through Sunday, you know, I can, yeah, you know, I remember when I I can say I can tell the story now because I've gotten to know James Holland really well. But I remember I was playing Sunday at Pebble uh, in 2013, and my Amber Porter we made the cut, and we're getting ready to tee off in the first tee. And James is we are in the last group, and James is is the uh, is tied with me for the lead. And he's a rookie on tour. It's his first time going out. And James is a great guy. He's really funny to be around. Um, just love the guy to death. I didn't really know him at that time. And so I told my amateur partner, who's a guy named Toby Wilt from here in Nashville, um, he's a really fun guy to be around. Makes friends with everybody in two minutes. I said, Toby, listen, today is work. I don't want you talking to James Hahn one bit. You're not to make him comfortable. He is not your buddy today. You are my buddy. You stay away from him. I don't want him to feel anything but play golf today. And so after about the 10th hole, James wasn't playing great, and I was playing really good, and he, he was kind of seventh or eighth place at this point. I said, Toby, you can go talk to him now. Go have fun with him. And that's the mentality you got to have on tour. you got to be able to separate on Sundays. That, you know, I know for a fact on Sunday at Tampa, Tiger was not going to go out of the way to talk to him, and I don't blame him. You know, it's his job to go work and try to win on Sundays, and that's the deal. Thursday through Saturday, pretty good. You can have some fun with some guys, give some guys some hard time. But on Sunday, it's a different ball game. You know, you're, you're trying to win. You're trying to be successful. And, it's not my job to make sure this guy has a great time on Sunday. I love it. Assassin, baby. Assassins <laughs> out there. I love it. So speaking of being an assassin, let's discuss this Wyndham round. All right, so you bogey one, right? And yeah. then you shoot a 59, a damn 59. Well, I can't imagine what that must have felt like. Take me through what you even remember about that out-of-body experience. Well, I just – I mean, I remember everything about it. I played – Terrible on Wednesday. I think I shot a couple couple over par on the pro am. Um, Thursday, I remember getting up and, and I was going to try the swing thought out for the day. I said, "Listen, I just have to go with this. I'm not hitting it good. I just need to hit somewhere straight, and I'll be fine, and uh, be able to make the cut and kind of get it around." And, and I snap hooked my first tee ball um, the trees and made, hit a terrible shot. Made bogey. And I was, man, I don't know if this swing thought's going to work. Like I can get a few more holes and see if it works, and kind of hit some good shots on the next few holes. And, uh, made a long putt, I think my fourth hole to get back even par, and started hitting it pretty good. Started hitting some pretty solid shots in a row, and kind of hitting it where I was looking. And they make a few birds for the turn. I had turned it three under par. And I'm like, okay, man, it's kind of this thing's working pretty good. I'm gonna ride it. Things are going well. And all of a sudden, I buried one, two, and three. Hit a foot on it on the, those first three holes and six under par through twelve holes. But still not really thinking about fifty nine. Um, I buried a par five, get seven under par, and like, okay, man, it's kind of turned this into a really good round. And I hold out on my 15th hole um, from the fairway to get to nine under, nine under par with three holes to play. And that's the first time I really even thought about 59. And I had a chance earlier in my career to shoot 59 on the European Tour in China. And I lift out on the last hole, 
I got really nervous and kind of freaked out. And didn't didn't really handle it well. You know, I was just too afraid of talking about it, thinking about it, you know, embracing it. You know, and so uh, I told myself I was not going to do that. You know, I'm not going to sit there and um, be afraid of shooting 59 or talking about it or being whatever. And so I get up on the next par three and hit a five iron to two feet, knock it in for birdie. So I've ten or par two holes to go, and I'm playing with Hideki Matsuyama and Billy Horschel, and we're walking to eight tee box. And I told both of them, I go, guys, man, it's not going to get any easier than this. You know, I got two wedge holes left, two easy birdie opportunities. We're going to, I'm going to shoot 59 today. It's going to find a way, man. Like if I screw this one up, I got nobody. I mean, this is as easy as ever going to get in my career to shoot 59. And they both kind of looked at me kind of crazy. So I'm serious. Like I'm, it's going to happen. You're all going to see it today. And uh, I met a short birdie putt on eight, and I was so mad. I was like, man, that was, you know, four footer down the hill. It should be a gimme, and I missed it. And I was really mad at myself and got to nine fairway and just kind of told us, if I hit the fairway, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to shoot 59. I hit the fairway, hit the 20 feet, and uh, walking up to the green, Billy Horschel uh, was like, man, I guess I was wearing a purple shirt. And he goes, I guess I should have worn a purple shirt today, huh? And I was like, well, you, you, if you did, you could probably have a puff of 59 like I do right now, and I'm going, to, I'm going to make it, Billy. I'm telling you right now, I'm going to make it. And half the stuff is me trying to talk myself into doing it. The other sure. half was I really believed I was going to do it. And sure enough, putt came off, went right in the middle. And, you know, at the, at the time, it was really cool. I didn't really realize what it, what it meant. There's something cool to do. I, I knew a lot of, not a lot of guys had done it. And when I got back to my room that afternoon, uh, you know, I probably had three or 400 texts. You know, probably more texts I got for 259 than I did for winning a golf tournament ever in my career. You know, and then I realized, kind of started sinking, you know, what a cool moment that was. And then, uh, you know, part of history that nobody will ever take away from me. And, and then the nerves hit me. I'm like, oh, my gosh, man. Uh, now I've got to win the golf tournament. Like, I can't screw this one up. Man. <laughs> you just set yourself up with a five. I think I had a five shot lead the first day. You can't be one of these guys that shoot 59 and lose the golf tournament. You know, so uh, the rest of the week was brutal. Probably the hardest win I've ever had on tour. Just had to deal with all that pressure and expectations. But luckily enough, they will get it done on Sunday. So for someone who isn't like a hardcore golf consumer or player or person who's not avid, explain to them what is 59. 59, it's more of a mental barrier, right? 59 is, uh, most pars are 72, 70, 70, 71, 72 is a par of a golf course. Um, it, you know, anywhere under pars, I think it's score. There's only been nine guys in history to shoot under 60. So 60 is like the barrier that's always hard. It's kind of like the four-minute mile and running, mm-hmm. trying to use some other analogy people understand. Um, that it's, guys got, can do it, it's just very, very rare when it happens. Hitting for the cycle in baseball, maybe something like that that doesn't happen very often and so uh it's more of a mental hurdle you know guys get great rounds going all the time when we kind of get close to there and all of a sudden the, the nerves kick in you know you're, you're going along feeling great the hole it's like it's four feet wide and you can't make a you know couldn't make a mistake if you tried and then all of a sudden you start thinking about what could go wrong or how you're going to shoot nine all of a sudden you get nervous and things are changing so it's just a complete mental hurdle of how to get over it and do it and uh yeah, you know, it's, it's something cool to be in history books to know. I'm one of two guys that done it. One of two guys have done it, gone on to win. So, um, and, you know, I'll be I'm, I'll be proud of that one for a long time. I've already kept you too long. A couple more, and I'll get uh, you out of here, brother. You're good, man. I got nothing going on. I, so I was really fascinated by the Ryder Cup this year because I feel like our expectations were so high, and everyone expected so much, and then it did, just didn't happen. I mean, it just was a bad effort, right? Mm-hmm. What was your reaction to all of the drama that stemmed from that loss? 
yeah, I think it was, you know, I wasn't real happy with the drama afterwards just because I know Jim really well. Got him to play a lot of golf with him, and I know how hard he worked. Um, and I thought he did everything right. You know, but I, I think every guy who's ever played on a Ryder Cup team will tell you the same thing. When we win a Ryder Cup, the captains get way too much credit. And when we lose a Ryder Cup, they get way too much blame. Um, you know, I think Davis did the, the exact same job in 12 as he did in 16. And in 12, he was a horrible captain. And in 16, he was the best captain ever. So I, I've never understood, you know, when people try to blame the captain for something that happens. At the end of the day, if you look at how we played, the European team played unbelievable. They made a ton of putts. They hit the ball in the fairway. It seemed like every time there was an important hole, it hit right down the middle of the fairway. Um, that golf course, extremely difficult golf course, hit the ball in the fairway on. The rough has grown up, and, and, and they intentionally did that to make sure that they, we had to play their game. Not, you know, We played at 16 at Hazel Team. We had really wide fairways, no rough, because all of our guys can bomb it. You know, they can all hit driver nine miles. The Europeans, for the most part, can't keep up with us that way. So we turned it into a birdie fest. And so that's the home course advantage. And France did the exact opposite. They turned into a U.S. Open where the fairway's real narrow, rough is real thick. It's going to be really, really tough for us to be successful. And so we had to play their kind of game. And so it was just a bad setup for us to begin with. But then to hear all the bickering kind of afterwards, you know, I wasn't a real big fan of. I, and I think for the most part, about on the team will say the same thing. Jim did a great job. They just put, didn't make the putts when they needed to. Um, you know, you got to have a lot of luck to win one of those things. I don't care what anybody says. You know, the European team played unbelievable. Just like we had a lot of luck when we won 16, when we won in 16, um, you're going to have to have luck to, to win those things. And so uh, I just didn't I didn't think it was good, fair to Jim. I mean, Jim worked so hard. Uh, he and Tabitha's wife did a great job, I thought. They, they, they thought of everything pretty much. and just, just didn't work out. Instead of just saying, God's on us, we didn't play good enough. I don't like when guys start pointing fingers at somebody else on the team. Me either. I agree with you. So, Son, you're hardcore Commodore, and I love it. Yep. I, hell, I should make a T-shirt that says that. I bet they'd sell pretty well. What did you think of Derek Mason's vest last year? I love it, man. I got one in the house. You know, look at that. <laughs> I mean, how, how many coaches are afraid to dance when, when they beat Tennessee for a third straight year and do all that kind of stuff? Man, I love, I love Mace. He's a great guy. He's a great coach. Um, his kids, the kids that play for him, absolutely love him. I mean, he's he, he's a fun guy to be around. You can't help but love him. You spend five minutes with him, um, and so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm all in on Mace. I, I hope I you keep too. him for as long as you want to stay. He's an amazing dude. Uh, I really enjoy being around him. I love his perspective. I love his intensity. And look, fact is, it's it's that that job is one that is not easy. It's not an easy job no. to be the football coach at Vandy, and. He's done such a tremendous job. Uh, I couldn't be more impressed with him. And I know, well, does, I know you feel He does stuff way. the right way. I think, I think it's everything Vanderbilt will say. He does stuff the right way, treats people the right way. Um, and his job can get a lot easier. We've got a new AD coming in. It's going to help him out a lot. So uh, we're excited to see a uh, guy named Malcolm Turner just got the job, who is the head of the G League. Uh, he used to be the D League for basketball, now it's the G League. So we were able to lure him in. So I think everybody at Vanderbilt is excited to see the, the, next, the next AD kind of take over and help Mace kind of get, get where he wants to go. So as a Vandy guy, what, what, what is Vandy over Tennessee? What's that mean? You know, it's, I guess it's like little brother beating up on big brother, you know, when the big brother's got a different rival, you know. It never really happens that much, but when it does, you never let them forget about it, you know. Because um, for all intents and purposes, there is no way that Tennessee should ever lose to Vanderbilt football. I mean, the history, the tradition, 
the recruiting base they have, the fan base they have, you know, it's pretty remarkable. As a Vanderbilt fan, I can say that because I grew up in this state. I, I, I understand it. Tennessee's football brand is so strong. But for whatever reason, multitude of reasons, they've had a lot of dysfunction going on up there. And so it's been fun for us to kind of get out back on top of them for a few years. You know, it's been fun to be able to hold that over them. And I don't think any Vanderbilt fan has any illusion it's going to last forever. Um, Tennessee should and will be strong again at some point in the near future. But it's been fun to have this over them for a while. And so, uh, you know, it's kind of flip-flopped. You know, the one thing we always had on them was basketball. It seemed like every year we were putting out a top 25 team in basketball Not this in the year, early but... 90s. They're legit. They're the real deal. And, and Rick Barnes has done a great job for them up there and was a great hire. Um, he, he brought some studs in there to play some basketball. So it's been fun. You know, it's it's something we – it's our rival. So anytime you beat your rival, you're, you're excited for a year, no matter how, how your season turns out. But um used to be, we always say, the quickest way to get fired at Tennessee is start losing Vanderbilt. The quickest way to get your job, lose your job. Because that's one thing Tennessee does not like putting up with is losing Vanderbilt in anything. Did I read that you were in China and set your alarm to wake up for a game? Oh, yeah. Every time, man. Every time. You know, travel overseas. That's a great thing about this day and age is you're able to follow your teams wherever you are in the world. You know, you're able to go um, be in China waking up at 3 a.m. to watch Vanderbilt games. Uh, Australia this year did the same thing. Um, so it's, it's you know, he has to watch ESPN app has been great for me. I get on there all the time. Check check them out. We we even watched on the tournament sometimes. We're playing bad on Saturdays and Sundays. We're the last, you know, one of the first few off. I'm not afraid to pull our phone out and check it. What while, while in the we're middle of the tournament? Oh yeah, <laughs> that is fantastic, dude. That's like a walk-in commercial. My bosses are going to oh, be yeah. amped that oh, you just totally. admitted that. What? Well, I mean, it's not. I mean, I guess two could find me for that. But I mean, they, they know what happens. Come on. I don't know. Well, I don't. I don't think they'll find you for it. What the hell they care? <laughs> Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, but we're trying to, you know, we're football fans. At the end of the day, we're all we're all degenerate football fans. I think that's absolutely fantastic, man. That's uh, <laughs> I mean, I I thought it was like I don't care how many strokes behind you are, it's all focus and all like tucked in shirts and all that stuff, man. Oh, and I mean, if if, if you're kind of if you realize you're finishing back of the pack on Saturdays and Sundays, and your, your, your team's playing. You're not afraid to pull, have your caddy hold on your phone for you while in between shots. You got to kill time. You, you can't, Dude, you can't think about your golf shot the whole time. So, you got to see what's going on in the Vanderbilt game. I told you guys it was hilarious. How about how about the thought that Brant Snedeker, if he's not playing so great in a tournament, is checking out the Vanderbilt Commodores, his beloved Vanderbilt Commodores, on the links between holes they're just like us y'all yeah for the record all he needs is a cold beer this is a non-paid ad by brent snedeker yeah completely not i mean and and that was the beauty of it like it just cracked me up i was kind of like wait what you do i thought that was fantastic they, they're just like us it's no different than us all see all he needs is a little bit of country music and a cold beer in the console of that golf cart and i'm i'm sure his game looks a whole lot like mine does i wish they could ride around and have some uh cold ones while they're golfing me too we need to have big discussion at some point about the uh that tiger phil deal uh the match yeah they need they need to spruce it up and by spruce it up i mean redneck it up a little bit and uh no doubt let the good old boys out there when watching them and you know riding around on carts having some uh some beverages having some cold beer i love it uh and speaking of loving it and speaking of cold beer uh, we're going to try something new on the Marty Smith America podcast. We're going to begin asking our interview subjects the Dan Lebitard Show poll questions. Any of you guys who are fans of Danny and Stu, 
and the boys know that throughout their show, they've created a phenomenon uh, with that show, but part of that phenomenon is their poll questions. If some random comment comes up, they ultimately, quote, put it on the poll. And they put a, a Twitter poll up, and the response is ridiculous. And so we thought it would be funny, since we have access to these great athletes or musicians or whomever, that we should ask them some of these poll questions. And Brant was our very first victim. Check it out. Okay, before I get you out of here, have you ever, uh, are you aware of the Dan Levitard show? Of course. I hear you, I hear you on there all the time. Okay, very good. So you know about their, uh, their, their daily polls that they do, like these spontaneous yes. random Mock, poll mocking questions. polls, yes. Yes. So as part of my podcast, uh, I'm going to ask you some poll questions. You good? Yeah. Okay. I'm good. Here we go. Did you know that your nipples are as unique as your fingerprints? <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> Nor did I. I just learned something. Is the spicy chicken sandwich from Wendy's the absolute best hangover cure? Oh, no. Come on. I'm from Nashville. Spicy chicken, that's what we do here. <laughs> did you know that roller coasters could cure asthma? I did not know that. Is that is that a fact? I don't know, but uh, <laughs> I will have to look that up on WebMD.com. <laughs> do you own underwear with holes in them? I don't think so, no. No, Does I, the Dan no, I, throw away. I don't think Laney would let me either. Does the Dan Levitard show have the dumbest smart people or the smartest dumb people? It's a combo of both. <laughs> Is the A in Stephen A. Smith really necessary? <laughs> I, yeah, that's a good one. I got no idea. That, that, what is that. Do we know what it stands for? I do not. I have no idea. I will ask him. Is the C yeah. in John C. Riley really necessary? It, that fits better for some reason, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of has a little bit better roll off the tongue. <laughs> is finding a new golf ball like finding a crisp $5 bill? It is for everybody but me. Yeah, you get free ones. I get free ones. Is a zebra black with white stripes or white with black stripes? I'm a, I'm a black with white stripes guy. Because if I, you had I equate to the zebra, the, the zebra putter I had growing up was black with white stripes on it. There you go. Winning. If you had 24 hours, could you find a flip phone? Yeah, I think I could. Do you sleep with your sheets tucked in or out? Out. Only psychos with them in. Word. I'm with you on that, man. I don't know how anybody <laughs> could have them in. Two more. Do you do you fling the pill and sling the rock? I don't do either of them. <laughs> Is the person who says throwing the pill a jackass or an irredeemable jackass? <laughs> I'm going to go with the irredeemable jackass. I actually came Amen. You, sir, are a superstar. And, I, dude, uh, I loved it. Thank you so much. That was awesome. That was just no, fantastic. Anytime, man. I'm a big fan of yours. Congratulations on all your success, man. I followed you back in the NASCAR days. I'm glad to see how successful you've been and how much fun you're having, man. It looks awesome. So keep it up. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. Hopefully, I'll get out there and see you boys soon. Yeah, please do. Anytime, man. Love to have you out on the road. We'll get you. We'll get you behind the ropes and have some fun with you. Love it. Sounds. I'll hold the phone. Deal. <laughs> I'll keep you updated on scores. That's right. You can start texting me live, live updates. <laughs> <laughs> Be good, bro. Thank you for your All example. Right. Anytime, buddy. Appreciate it, man. See you you man. too.
I've learned a lot of things on the Marty Smith America podcast from all these amazing people, but the uh, I will say I've never learned anything quite like the fact that my nipples are as unique as my fingerprints, at least according to the science that is the Dan Levitard Show. I'm sure McGee knew that. Let's chat with him about this. McGee, uh, did you know this? No. I, 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 was, <laughs> I, I did not know that. But um, I did not either. I'm glad to know it. I haven't. I haven't spent a lot of time studying this, but I, I haven't clearly, either. I, I'm, I'm I, glad somebody is. I, uh, you know, you learn something new every day, and yeah. I did not realize that if I did uh, commit a crime, that they could catch me by my nipples. Wow. Well, I think I told you the story that uh, one time we were riding bikes, like little BMX bikes, when we were, I don't know, probably fifth grade, and uh, I had a buddy go over his handlebars, and he lost one, like like lost road nipple? rash. Shredded so, it straight off. Yeah, so my question is, I need to track him back down because when it grew back, was it unique or was it, you know, a duplicate of what was before? If you if like, if you remove your fingerprints, I think they grow back the same way. I don't know. What movie was it where that dude cut off his fingernails? Or not fingernails, fingerprints. Was it Seven? Was that that Brad Pitt movie? Yeah. Did and, I and, and, and they always, in all the spy movies, they always like, put their hands in the acid. Or they rub, rub like uh, flex seal or something on their fingertips. That way they can't. <laughs> I'm surprised that there hasn't been a, like a hillbilly headline where a guy got caught because his, uh, his nipple was the DNA. Oh, that's coming. Now we'll be we'll be looking for that now. Well, because Florida and uh, in, that's a great transition into redneckness. Now, one of the greatest uh, country boy movies of all time is uh, Smokey and the Bandit, which yeah. everybody who has any inkling about. McGee and me understand our infatuation with this movie. Now, that led to a recent discussion that Travis and I had here and a hashtag called New Bandit where I asked you guys to send us who you thought might provide the best New Age Smokey and the Bandit cast. So I had to bring in the uh, expert. I had to bring in McGee to get his perspective on this. All right, let's run it down. All right, if you were Hal Needham, if if McGee was Hal Needham 2019 and he decided I'm going to put a brand new Smokey and the Bandit 2.0 on the silver screen, let's run it down. Who would you cast in your dream world for Smokey and the Bandit 2.0, new Bandit, as Bandit? Uh, McConaughey. I think that's a very good one. Okay, so Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, because whoever it is, number one has to be legit Southern, and number two has to have the charisma, like of Burt Reynolds, who, by the way, I know people all the time. Burt Reynolds was born in Michigan. That's fine. He grew up in Florida, like he lived yep. in Florida his whole life. But yeah, I think McConaughey could pull that off, don't you? Okay, I think McConaughey is an absolutely tremendous call on my list. I actually had Vince Vaughn. Oh yeah. Okay. I went Vince Vaughn as Burt Reynolds because he has that smart-ass right. approach to everything and that super ability to be very dry and very hilarious at the same time, which Burt had in spades. And uh, so I think we've both done really well here. Travis, did you even make a list? So I'm I'm, I'm afraid that I could offend both of you right now in these next few oh words. Oh, Lord, it's probably Urban Meyer or something. No, you got? no, it's that's actually even worse. I, I've never seen Smokey and the Bandit. Okay. Well, oh my God! What? Oh, that's impossible. 
It's on CMT on, like every. Pray. Lord, it's on CMT like every other uh, day. I'll, I'll, ma- I'll make that. You. Do you want me to make that my homework? Yes. Okay. Yes, that is absolutely your homework. And, and it's I will got nothing say, to do with us. It's got to do with being American. I will. It's so I, I'm with, back uh, on the Marty Field in life. I'm back on the Marty McGee program. I think in two weeks, uh, I will watch it before then and have a full review for you guys. Yeah. Okay. You get the well, real version. Uh, that, I mentioned CMT, but you need to find like you need to find online somewhere. You need to find the real version. I'm on it. Spend three ninety nine and go to Netflix and watch the yeah. real version, please. Yeah, please. Come on, man. Come on, man. Come on, man. We have failed him, McGee. We have failed. I thought we were doing a good job of educating America on all ways Southern, but apparently we are failing miserably in our own house. If Travis hasn't seen the bandit yet, yeah. That's uh, Okay, moving along. Who plays Carrie in McGee's New Bandit? That's a good question. How about it's a uh, hard one? How about uh, Anne Hathaway? Oh, Anne Hathaway! Wow, that was a quite a pull. That but was where, that was yeah, really a pull. But she could pull it but off. I think she'd like, be fantastic. She's got. The, I mean, she's she's kind of got that Sally field, like always going to look younger than she is thing. And yeah, I went the same. I went the same route. But uh, in, in terms of my choice, yeah. But I went Faith Hill. All right, yeah, yeah. I went yeah. Faith Hill. Yeah, because I, Faith Hill, I, Vince Vaughn, I could roll with that. Yeah, I think Faith Hill could be a really good carry, and uh, you know, she just has that that net girl next door, down home, but blow you away beauty that Sally Field had. By the way, just as an aside, Laney is reading. Uh, Sally Field's book right now. Okay, moving along. Well, and everyone should read. Uh, everyone should read Hal Needham's book too. Stuntman. That's one of my all-time favorite biographies. If ever there were a great promoter of great promoters, it is McGee and Hal Needham. One yeah. of the greatest stories I've ever read on ESPN.com was that opus you wrote on Needham about what five years ago, six years yeah. ago. Yeah, he came to the track to promote this book. It was me, uh, Hal Needham, and Harry Gant. Sitting in the little radio room at the media center in um at Daytona, I, I I you talk about trying to play it cool, but on the inside going bonkers. Totally, uh, I I played it cool, but I I was I was clearly a fan. And Cannonball Run, man, can all, all yeah. And all due respect to yeah, I mean Cannonball Run is still. Uh, I would watch Cannonball Run right now. So yeah, they're, they're, they might actually be re- remaking that, which I think you and I should be in that. Go on, I'm sorry. We no, should. No, no. Da- oh, let's make our uh, let's make our state state our claim right now. We should absolutely be in a Cannonball Run remake. Um, our agents are ready for your call immediately. Yeah, we will play you know, Terry Bradshaw. Who's directing Mel that? Yeah. Who's directing that? Uh, well, the guys who did uh, Reno 911. Oh, and nice. uh and and uh a night at the museum and some of those and uh one of those guys I think went to high school with my wife. So I need to Well she should deal. be cast in it too for sure. Yeah. Actually she should probably be in my smoky and new bandit. Yeah. All right. Yeah, but, no but I, I just want I want us to even if we're just in one scene driving through in a car, that's fine. That's a, that, that Did you fun. know? Yeah, even if we're just like extras and we get yeah. to wave at the camera as we yeah. go by or eat an ice cream cone or something. Did you yeah. know this? You probably did know this because you're like me and you're a little neurotic about smoking the bandit. But I did not realize, or I forgot, I guess, that John Schneider is an extra. All right, so I'll give you another one. So they shot a really bad uh, made-for-TV, quote-unquote, sequel uh, for Smoking the Bandit, just called The Bandit. 
and Burt Reynolds had nothing to do with it, but Hal Needham directed it. They shot it in Monroe, North Carolina, right after I graduated high school and couldn't find a job and was living with my parents. And John Schneider played like the sheriff that was chasing the bandit. Huh. Yeah. I used to he see was him a cowboy all. extra in the original. Yeah. That's fantastic. That? Joe Klecko was in it too, son. Yeah, I knew. Well, hey, and um, could you uh, get on that, Travis, getting uh, getting Bo and, and or Luke Duke on the radio I, show? I will work on it. Thank you. Yep, that's that's, uh, that's imperative. We need yeah. we need to do that. Uh, okay, who, who 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 snowman? This is tough because uh, I was trying to think of like Jerry Reed. Obviously, was at the height of his country music stardom when he took that role. So I'm Such trying to a think. Perfect role. Oh yeah, I'm trying to think of a current like country music artist. A lot of people said Eric. A lot of people wrote me oh, back yeah. and said they felt like Chief should play Snowman. Does he? Would he like to do a little acting? Oh, I think he'd be awesome at Snowman. But I actually, I actually have Dwight Yoakam. I have another country star. Oh yeah, I think yeah. Dwight Yoakam would be an awesome Snowman. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Because he well, too is and, a smartass, and he's um. And he's a little overexposed right now, but old um, uh, Luke, uh, Luke. Actually, Luke, yeah, Luke, Luke would, Luke would be fantastic, and yep. um, and uh, and Blake Shelton. Yeah, oh, Blake. I, I, I can see great. Blake Shelton. Yeah, Blake off. would be a great snowman. He'd be great, and he and I guarantee you, he could recite the movie the, the original word for word. We need to get on that too. Yeah. Who's Buford T? Mine's good. I got a good Buford T. All right, get, get, give me yours. Kenny Powers. What's his oh, name? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Danny, yeah, McBride. Danny McBride. Yeah, Danny McBride. Danny McBride is the right answer. Danny McBride is definitely Buford T. Justice. Yeah. Uh, because he, like the perfect personality, the perfect like look, everything about it, man. He's the perfect Buford T. I struggled with Big Enos, and I I <laughs> I have a little Enos that I don't know if that's the right call or not, but uh. Anyway, well, for, I, I, well, here was my for Big and Little Enos. I said I was thinking Will Ferrell for Big Enos because he's like great. six six, and Zach Galifianakis for Little Enos. Yeah, that would be very funny. And those two, those two know each other. I'm, I'm impressed that you can say Zach's last name that well. Galifianakis. He's a he, he's Pretty a fellow. Good. He lived in Raleigh, like I did. That's hometown number three for me. Yep, hometown three. Yeah. Uh, hometown three to, is a big stop for you. He went to NC State. That's why whenever he plays a complete idiot, they're always an East Carolina fan. That's true. In a couple of movies, he like <laughs> is that why he mentions the Wolf Pack in Hangover? Yeah. yeah, and and he and in one of the Hangovers, he says, "I can't." The third Hangover, I can't go, or to, second Hangover, I can't go on this trip because some the Backstreet Boys. Oh no, uh, the Jonas Brothers to, are in Raleigh. Yeah, coming to Raleigh, Durham. My my mind is blown right now. Yeah, this revelation here, and in the uh, the campaign or whatever it is where he runs for office against Will Ferrell. He's uh he plays this kind of just complete idiot and the guy's like a big East Carolina fan and it's all because Zach went to uh NC State and hates East Carolina. All right, so we've decided that uh, now we we need to have, I I really like McConaughey as a call on Bandit. So let's go with that. Okay. We'll go McConaughey as Bandit. We're going Dwight Yoakam as Snowman. Yep. Uh we're going Are we going Faith Hill or Ann Hathaway? I say Ann Hathaway. They can have an act off. Yeah. We're going Danny McBride as Buford. Yeah. We're going Will Ferrell as Big Enos. Yeah. We're going Zach Galifianakis. No, Marty, say his name. I want to hear you say it. 
Galifianakis. Proud of you. Yep. Yep. I've made that up as I went along. And I think we've created one hell of a great cast. Oh, yeah. For New Bandit. I'm oh, yeah. telling you, I want, still want to hear from all y'all. Hit us up at Marty Smith ESPN, at ESPN McGee, at Travis Rockhold. Put the hashtag New Bandit. And this may just become an entire segment or two on Marty and McGee as well. Hey guys, I, uh, uh, I checked the TV listings. Um, it's on stars this coming Friday. I'm going to hit the DVR. We're yep. recording it. I'll watch yep. it. Full review coming up. Yep. Waylon's yeah. in, uh, uh, in two weeks when you retire after the Super Bowl, Travis will be back on Marty and McGee. Yep. And we're going to have a full breakdown of Travis's review of Smokey and the Bandit here in a couple weeks. Yeah. And, uh, all right, we've solved the world's problems per usual. McGee, just uh, so you boys know, I'm almost not hungover anymore oh, from uh, <laughs> from my weekend of concert going. Uh, my uh, my dad called. I don't called. know how they do it. Yeah, as soon as the show was over with, as soon as the TV show, radio show was over with on Saturday, my dad called. He goes, you guys all right? And uh, <laughs> I was like, no, we're not. <laughs> I think producer Pat was show. a little worried about you guys. This uh his second time producing and I talked to him after the yeah. show and he honestly thought someone was going to throw up. Yeah. No, it was it well, was um and he, he doesn't understand that yeah. gamers game. We're yeah. gamers. <laughs> and right. uh we I might have been pale as a ghost and yeah. uh looked every bit as bad as I felt, but hey, we got her done. That's yeah. what we do. A little uh, uh enough coffee will always get you through it. I mean, it was a terrible cycle. I was explaining this to them, all my buddies, the, that ne- at the show that night, the second show, where I, okay, so I had had so much Jack and Coke, uh, Friday night that I barely slept Friday night into Saturday. So, I mean, like, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I barely, I don't, I don't really know if I actually went to sleep. How many hours combined like, did you two get? Friday night. I got 90 minutes or so. Yes. I, actually I got, in the bed. Yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll say I got three hours. So combined. Okay. So we're looking at, we're looking at four and a half, five hours total combined. Yeah. And, and that's just in the bed. I don't know that I was right. asleep that whole time, but I laid down and got up in that well, the, of time. The problem was this. It wasn't that I felt terrible. It was the Coke because I don't. I don't drink caffeine at night. I always right. have my morning coffee. It's like right. the sun coming up for me. Yeah. It's the most vital part of my day. But I don't usually have any caffeine after maybe nine o'clock. Yeah. And so I lay down in the bed. I'm like, my, I, I can't. And, and my mind was spinning because we had a show coming. And then I get up and go do the show. And because I was such a mess, I was pounding coffee throughout the show. Oh, yeah. And so when we got done with the show, I got back to the hotel room. I'm like, dude, I can't sleep. Hands are shaking. Oh yeah. Well, it was, just uh, and also just the pure adrenaline of making award winning television and radio. Oh, uh, that alone. Did Jeremy show up yet? Sleep. Miami <laughs> didn't show up yet, but I, I expected to. I assume he got I, lost in the mail. Yeah, yeah, I assume it's on a truck on the way. So <laughs> it's on Snowman's truck rolling to us, <laughs> crossing the Mississippi. <laughs> Snowman, Snowman's truck with all that Coors and. uh May never make it to its destination. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out, dude. I appreciate it. Hold on it. a second, though. Speaking of awards, quick shout-out to our boy McGee uh, getting the uh, Motorsports uh, Award this past weekend. And I wasn't even there. Thank you. I appreciate that it. That was as shocking as the sun coming up in the morning. Well, I, well Congratulations, so I, I, sir. Thank you. And I, I didn't go to the dinner because I was like, man, I ain't going to win anything. I've been in the last couple of years, haven't won nothing. And, of course, the one year I went, I did. But I appreciate that. Proud of you. 
and uh, thanks for hanging out. I appreciate it. And Travis, thanks so much for getting Brant. I appreciate your effort. Thanks to Louise for being crazy enough to let us do it. Thanks so much to all of you guys for your investment in it. And, and not just in Marty Smith's America, but in Marty McGee as well. Subscribe, rate, and review it for us. It's important to us. I know it seems trivial, but it matters. And, uh, and we appreciate when you do that. And I'm just so appreciative as always to our military here and all over the world. We're free for a reason. It's, and it's because of our men and women in uniform. Don't forget it. Thank them when you see them. That's Marty Smith's America, Volume 41. Appreciate Brent Snedeker for hanging out. Thanks, 1-800-Flowers, for paying for it. We'll see you all next time around.